I've told you about my experience in the, the NBC Winnebago, haven't I? Yes, yeah. It was extensively. Have I? I didn't tell you about Rob Hawthorne trying to exit the Winnebago through the fridge. <laughs> because in his defence, it was a luxury fridge with an excellent door. And it was kind of floor to ceiling, this thing. Mm. So it's like a fridge freezer. But he thought he'd come in through the door. So that's the confusing thing, that you'd normally go out the door that you come in. Was so it? he came in through the door and tried to exit through the fridge. Was it a particularly disorientating <laughs> Winnebago? Uh, not really. It wasn't like spinning or anything like no. that. It was just ba- it was static. It, it, it's a static caravan in essence, but a luxury <laughs> he one. He didn't definitely hadn't come in via the fridge. It's not like a no, a, no, I don't a think he had. situation. You know, wa- a wardrobe. No, no, no. He didn't squeeze through the world. freezer compartment and then go back out that way. But it was it was an excellent door. It was a door, a fridge door that I would have been proud to call my front door. Are you going back to the NBC Winnebago anytime soon, Chinch? There apparently there's a possibility. Why are you smirking? You, you, do you know something? <laughs> Just wondering. If oh, who, who's dropping the story so that they can then tell a yeah. more important one? This was it Chinch? Was yeah. it us for prompting? Because there it? was people were were looking for like a, a motive here as to why I was Winnebago'd. Yeah, and maybe I was being buttered up. Yes, without the butter, and I have had a call. You have been buttered up. I have been buttered up. <laughs> yes, so I will be. In the Winnebago, but I was meant to be in the Winnebago, not just kind of gate crashing. Yeah. I will be, yes. An invited I, I, guest. An invi- I, yes, I, I'll be an employee. I'll be working for them. So I will maybe be able to invite someone else. Into th- is that what happens? I'm putting Ferris. my hand up. It's an audio medium. Can I come in the Winnebago? Uh, can I win a whole bago? Will you behave yourself? I will. Um, you can look down your nose at me. Um, because well, I'm I look, look down my nose at everybody because <laughs> it's massive. <laughs> but just like you have been looked down upon by the regular members of the Winnebago set, uh, you will be allowed to look down upon me Mm. as an invited guest. So I am providing you with the opportunity to feel higher up on that that the, the echelons of the uh, the hierarchy because there is the there is and the Winnebago on one side of the Winnebago there's a banquette where I think guests <laughs> you know invited guests sit where myself and Rob Hawthorne That's sat on the, the other side you went a little bit too close to bonk rather yeah, than really, banquette yeah, yeah. and on the other side there was the the Lasso Dixon Arlo White section which is basically yeah. a table. A table with with Ooh. chairs. So that's again, that's the classy side of the bago. So I should stay uh, away from that. You'll you'll be on the bonquette. I might well have to gravitate towards the luxury section of the Winnebago. You'll have to just kind of rough it on the bonquette. The yeah, you don't want to take Graham Lasso's seat. You'd be furious. Famously horrible. He won't be there. Man. He won't be there. Soxie he not there? won't be there. No, 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 no. There's, there's only there. there's only one former England left back allowed, allowed per in broadcast. the Winnebago at any time. Uh, Soxie's lovely. He is. He's a lovely man. He, he is. I'm quite surprised how, how lined and furrowed his face is because he was cherubic when he played. He was. And I always felt he would stay cherubic and hope that he would. But then meeting him again, I was quite surprised. But he lives in Spain, so he he's clearly weather beaten. <laughs> Do, are, are you trying to uh, pronounce things in an American way now? Cause I no, always not it was, at all. It was no. cherubic, so but it's now cherubic. I've got to say Jersey. Uh, not, not, not the place. Yeah. Field, the, not pitch. Field, not pitch. Anything else? Ball? Do you still call it a ball in America? Or do you call it soccer or football? <laughs> I call it. It'll be soccer. Soccer. Yeah. In, in, in a professional capacity. Yeah, great goal. Great goal shot. It's clearly no coincidence that <laughs> don't, M- NBC... Don't, don't, don't get hired by NBC yeah. and then immediately yeah, yeah, yeah. mock America. Not immediately, maybe second half? Can, yeah. I, can I start to bring that in? NBC going for chinch so soon after the introduction of Out of Context Reacher cannot be a coincidence. Yeah, that's true. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth, 100% cotton, 60 degree wash, 
Rory Smith, Colours Could Run, 30 Degree Wash, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Delicates, Hand Wash Only. <laughs> uh, we are at Chin Fork to enjoy a Chinch, some food prepared by Mrs. Hinchcliffe, uh, because not satisfied by catering for 100 people at a live show, she wants to... Again, put you in charge of a sumptuous feast. We're just we're just us. browning off the potato topping on the hot pot, which any I'm doing. I know the oven's doing it, but I'm overseeing the oven's work. Are there, are there any beetroots uh, involved in this? There, there could be some chopped cabbage. Uh, if you haven't already, by the way, you can vote for Andy, not for his cooking, uh, and also Rory in the FSA Awards. Uh, we will repost the link on social media. It's very easy to do. The deadline is the 30th of November. So you get more time to think about this one than you do for the actual British general election. Yes. The, the, the deadline to register time. to vote in that has passed. Yeah, and what, what category? Are we in the same... Are you no, and I you are each in other? Sexiest Pundit. Well, yeah. And I am in Rear of the Year. <laughs> what do you mean, really? Of course I'm in Sexiest Pundit. I'm bound to be. Nikki has arrived to contest the very category, let alone uh, the winner of that category. Pundit of the Year, Andy Hinchcliffe, Writer mm. of the, the Year, but Rory Smith, and also Monday Night Club, which of course is a radio show to which you contribute yeah. also. Uh, I think it's really important that people know that the priority has to be voting for Chinch. That is very much the priority. But I've got to win it on merit. We can't just, it can't just be like... No, it's a popularity no, contest. That's a version of merit. Yeah, but I'm not popular. It's like Eurovision. Even around this table, I'm not that popular. So how on earth... I'd say you're in the top four most popular members sitting around this table. Really? Definitely. Yeah. Fourth. Champions League place. You're at top four. Don't mm. bulk it. Better than a trophy. Uh, also, if you don't mind, we haven't asked in a long while. Apart from passingly at the end of each pod, we are going to ask it in a little bit more of an isolated way now. Please... Give us some five-star ratings and also reviews on iTunes. One has been provided by none other than Rory's wife, Kate. Yes. Uh, for which we are very grateful. Please add yours to that. Uh, if you get a moment uh, and wouldn't mind lying through your teeth about how much you enjoy the show, we'd be very grateful. And some sort of algorithmic benefit will come our way. To be fair, Kate did say that she had given us a review. She did not say it was a five-star review. I have not checked it yet. It may have been a one-star review. Citing nonsense. <laughs> Describing <laughs> it as a kind of good way to get out of the house, but an awful listen. We don't know. Uh, this is also our first opportunity to say thank you to everyone who came to the live show mm. uh, in front of more than just the people at the live show. Mm. Hopefully those who weren't there have been given a feel of what it was like for us to be amongst friends for an evening instead of the regular podcast, which is very much produced amongst <laughs> colleagues. Uh, we have uh, a treat for you, uh, incidentally, as a little bonus at the end of the pod this week, we will be playing out the Out of Context Reacher special Ooh. from the live show. An excerpt from a Leave Child novel fashioned into a Radio 4 style play by Andy Hinchcliffe. So if you're one of those people who normally fades us out before we fade ourselves out, uh, today it's worth you going until the very end. I can't escape Lee Child now. You must be able to, if you wanted a, a face-to-face with him, you must be in a position to make that happen. No. You'd be, you'd be surprised. He lives, in, he lives in New York, doesn't you'd he? You'd be surprised how he, little He lives clout. now in Wyoming. Mm. He's Wyoming? Got a, got, got a ranch. Wow. Doesn't like people. The books have done really well for him, haven't they? They really have. Yeah. The, you'd, be, you'd be amazed how little clout the football reporter for the New York Times actually has with best-selling yeah, authors. But you know people who have more clout than you. Isn't that the important? Get I, them to set it up. I know many people who have more clout And also, than if they. you mention, because he, he's an Aston Villa fan, isn't he? So he will he's clearly... Bo- yeah. he, will, he will bound to know about the chinch. So throw my name into the mix. You're guaranteed to get a face-to-face interview. I think interview. there's more of a chance that Steve Duppy could interview him, to yes. be honest. That there, there is a link. The one between Chinch and Aston Villa is not one that necessarily yeah. remains I'm indelible. I'm not saying there's a link between myself and Aston Villa, but I was, I was a, a huge figure, literally. Back in the day, I was the Barry White of the Everton team. So he, Lee Child will, he will... He will know who you are. And I know Will Barrett, who played for Aston Villa. So again, there's a tenuous connection that we can maybe make good use of. Yeah, that's true. We need to get, we need to get child. 
not a child, Lee Child, <laughs> on the pod. So, Lee Child, uh, get in touch with the podcast at Setpiece Menu on Twitter, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. We start uh, with some correspondence that comes from Richard English. Dear Hugh, Rory, Steve and Andy, I wanted to send you all a quick note to say thank you for a great evening at the SPM live show. Love the brownies and the chat about Lee Child, Postman Pat and briefly football. The only <laughs> negative aspect of the evening from my perspective was finding myself having to ask the first question in the Ooh. Q&A, which uh, was, as you remember, determined by the fact that somebody had taped underneath their seat some M&S Mini bites. Although quite a lot of people had apparently some tape underneath their seats that they pulled out a little bit too aggressively. And um, some of the seats were ruined at the venue. So oh. apologies for that. Well, we didn't say we weren't rock and roll, did we? We trashed the joint. Um, so Richard goes on to say, to make up for my rather lame contribution on the night, we cannot repeat the question that he asked because it was part of the not for broadcast. No, we can say what he asked, can't we? Uh, well, we can. Okay, go on then. Did he ask us? Who we supported. Yes. Yeah. And then we answered it. And, and then the evening was made, downhill from yes, there, yeah. basically. And we made sure everybody promised to not put anything on social media. Um, I would like to put forward another question for your consideration. That so, seems fair. panel, following the recent Sterling Gomez skirmish, a number of ex-pros have commented the episode was nothing out of the ordinary and it occurs on a daily basis at football clubs. If this is the case, what effect does it have, if any, on team spirit and performance? Thanks again, Richard. We are um, looking at you, Chinch. Yeah. Because you've been in that environment. I would probably say players having a bit of a dust-up, a bit of a scrap in training is better than sleeping with each other's wives. That doesn't do a lot for team spirit. But, you know, these guys are, you I, know... I like highly, hold on, hold there's on. There's a ju- duality. Hold on. There's one of them. <laughs> hold on. Do, does it have to be one or the other? Yeah. If people don't fight, then they are going to sleep with each other's wives. <laughs> Footballers we're talking about here. When they're doing yep. those posed photos for the contract signing, is, is that the bit that they're looking at, the clause? You know, is it, yes. I will be required to... Yes, yes. To, yeah. to, Either to punch th- someone... throw down at some point. Or, or throw some shapes in the bedroom department, <laughs> in someone else's bedroom department. But, yeah, I've been a... a I, did I ever... Ha- I don't ever have had a fight... In my life, <laughs> I think I once threw a punch when I was eight, um, but then I got battered. So that's <laughs> I never, I never was that. I don't know. Players get they are quite high, a lot of them are quite highly charged, aren't they? Do you think it was? I whenever whenever I hear that 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 rationale that it's it's a day to day occurrence happens all the time. I always think Not that's, all the time. that's slightly overplaying it. I think they are relatively rare fights between players. I, I, Nicky will back this up, won't you, Nicky? I, I'm more mouthy, aren't I, than than that. Yeah, <laughs> than than physical. Than anything. It was so mouth s- and trousers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I'm not telling anyone about my road rage incident. And that wasn't road rage. They were in the wrong. But anyway, <laughs> so it's not rage if it's justified. No, <laughs> justifiable rage is a very different thing. But um, I forgot one. So what were we talking about? No, oh, I yeah. fight. Fight. So how many, how many would you have seen? Yeah, I, I was fights? I was mouthy. I, I promised to do a lot of things to a lot of people <laughs> on and off the pitch and never delivered, which basically <laughs> story of my life. That was <laughs> That's not mouthy. That's been a massive letdown. Like were, you, were you promising to help them with chores and they're just not doing it? No, no. It's you know telling them, "Oh, I'm going to you do so that again, the, and you're going to get the right. Y I order. Yeah, why yeah, I yeah. Order. But I, I tended to. I, there wasn't many players that normally. There's 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 some reason that these things happen. It's not if if you had a squad of players and and something happened, most of the squad could probably guess who the two players were that were involved because there tends to be something rumbling along mm. there's kind of signs of it there's maybe in the, just little things that are said in the dress and it starts to ramp up from there and then ends up something happening on the training pitch but normally you have a lot of kind of verbals between players as well um, and that, that tends to be more day to day than actually yeah there's not punch ups in every training session well I think the, the best gauge of it is that 
the examples of it happening are, are A, quite rare, and B, quite famous. So the, these things do come out. So you think about, obviously, Hartson and Bert, your friend John Hartson and Al Berkovich. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. captured on, on that was a, I heard it described the other day as possibly like the first ever viral video, really. Mm. It got captured on camera and played out on Strike Sports. But even like Zlatan and Aguchi on Yewu at Milan, who had a proper, proper rook. It, it, it isn't unheard of, but it, it's quite rare. And also, I suspect it's getting rarer because it's also massively unprofessional. Uh, Tommy Dolman gets in touch from Australia and he starts his email in the way that many can learn from. Hi all, really enjoy the 100th episode spectacular and also all the other episodes in the back catalogue of which I have listened to all and will continue to do so. Thank you Tommy, correct. I just wanted to raise a point regarding the topic of the 100th podcast which is perhaps uh, relevant unless it was addressed when the Baywatch music was playing and thus had to be edited out. Is there an element where enjoying football can simply be boring and thus not enjoyable as a result? For me there is a correlation between expectation and enjoyment. Most good films, TV shows and even sporting tales in Involve conflict, a story of redemption, or seismic moments which forms part of the journey. A twist, something unexpected happening, or a thrill in general. If you know the story, will it be as enthralling or enjoyable? Is turning up every week knowing that you're going to enjoy the game all it's cracked up to be? Is it enjoyable to have a routine 2-0 win where you have 70% of the possession and 20 shots to one? Or perhaps turning up every week expecting to win scoring inside the first three minutes against lesser opposition at home is the same. Is that experience of football enjoyable? Or is enjoyment built as part of, or as a culmination of, a journey which includes harder times, feeling like it's you against the world, being 3-0 down at half-time and winning 4-3. In that sense, does the stress ultimately make the enjoyment more enjoyable? I think sometimes we want to feel wronged, like it's us against the world, like we've been robbed, cheated by an opposition player diving and yelling, how did he miss that handball? Because when all is said and done, it makes the enjoyment sweeter and perhaps completes that narrative. Love the pod. Keep up the good work from Tommy. Always think jeopardy is the, mm. the critical aspect to enjoying a football match. There's that, that level of uncertainty that, that even if you're at their best and, and they're at their worst, that something could happen mm. to conspire against your team. And if you don't have that, and I think we've seen a case of it with Manchester City a lot in the, in the manner in which they've taken sides apart, that, that perhaps if you are a regular watching Manchester City's home games, that because that jeopardy isn't there often enough, perhaps the level of enjoyment has diminished ever so slightly. But if you watch football for 25, 30 years, haven't you pretty much seen everything? So it then takes something really unusual to then say, well, that was different, then the enjoyment levels change. Because you do get weathered by the footballing wins, surely. And that's why kids... That's why What's wrong oh, with it? Send that to Lee Child. Beautiful, isn't it? No, that's too good for Lee Child. Are you having but, like, a, like a stroke? <laughs> Why? Because I'm coming out with good stuff. Yeah. That means I must. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. But anyway, do you know what I'm saying? When you're a kid, everything is new and it's all new experiences, yeah, yeah, yeah. so everything's yeah. enjoyable. But when you watch something or do something for a long period of time, it's like being a player. Well, that's you can't say. Well, did did you enjoy your 600th game? Well, no, not well. It's not my first game, so clearly it's going to be very different. Well, is it the same for people watching? It has to be the jeopardy that Steve said. Something unusual has to happen for you to say, "Oh, I've not seen that in a while." I, I felt differently about that game because well, I, of what happened. I mean, I wouldn't tell the Athletic that you didn't enjoy your 600th game, otherwise they'll do some sort of deep I didn't play, dive. Sadly, athletic, I didn't play 600 games, no. which is always a... Tops issue. out at 250. The, um, 450. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> including youth team. 451. <laughs> the... Um, yeah, that must. Well, that's that's why when you when you go to any stadium, the people who aren't singing the songs, the people who aren't cheer, who cheer the dolls, but always feel the, like they're the least sort of obviously supporting the team are the old fellas because mm. they've seen it all before and it isn't that exciting. They go because it's a habit. Mm. The um, I agree with Steve about that. 
the idea that if you know you're going, your team is going to win, I think the atmosphere does suffer. We've seen that with City. We've seen it at Barcelona. You go to, go to a regular, regular La Liga or even Champions League group stage game um, at Barcelona and the atmosphere is pretty poor because they are thinking, well... Give us half an hour before nil up. See so what they've, they've been spoiled. They've been spoiled. And games so aren't a contest. But Manchester United were the first to be yeah. hit with that particular. Exactly. Stick. So I think w- whenever whenever you have a team that that wins really regularly, the kind of expects to win. The atmosphere does suffer. There isn't that sense of jeopardy. And ultimately, what we want from from all sport, I think, is drama, which was illustrated best to me by the recent Copa Libertadores final. Um, which was controversially broadcast on BBC Two instead of in this country instead of Michael Portillo's Great Australian Australian Railway Journeys. Not uh, everybody was happy about that decision. Well, there was there were a lot of train fans who were upset. The Portillo family, in particular. The Portillo family were furious. <laughs> People who like men in large cream trousers. <laughs> That was a, they suffered, and also people who appear to think that you're only allowed to like domestic football, and that if you want to watch anything else at all, you are some sort of awful poser. They were very upset, as were, ironically, people who really want to watch Latin American football and don't like other people doing it because it makes them less special. Mm. People are strange. Well, that is, that's the real hipster approach to it, isn't yeah. it? We, we like this thing because it's inaccessible, and now that it's, it's, it's there we don't in, like it in the public yeah. domain, well, not interested anymore. But that game was awful. That was an awful football match. I thought... Uh, the, 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 the panel doing the analysis at half-time were Mark Chapman, excellent, uh, Gilberto Silva, sexiest voice in the world, and Jonathan Wilson, who's, you know, okay. And it was a really bad game. They did really well to get quarter of an hour's chat out of it at half-time. You just thought, mm, all right, this is, this is not going well. This is not a great experiment for BBC Two. That game was dreadful for 88 minutes as River Plate took the lead and then tactically fouled their way to the 88th minute, at which point Gabriel Barbosa, Gabby Doll, scored an equaliser, when I like to think the entire BBC was thinking, oh no, we're going to have to have extra time <laughs> of this South American football match. What's we're the next to, show? We're going to have to cancel something else. And, um, and then Gabby Doll got a second. And it was an awful game, but anyone who'd watched that could not have... What, people always say, oh, well, you, know, you don't want to watch that to the... You shouldn't be watching this game because the standard's dreadful. But the standard of football, in inver- I'm doing the inverted comments, is only one of the reasons we watch football. Most football's awful. If you watch most football matches and you're not emotionally invested in either of the teams, the standard generally, apart from yeah. Yeah. 1%, 2%, is really low. It's, there's this idea, that, oh, you know, they, you, you watch like French teams outside PSG and oh, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't compete in the, ch- in the championship. Think, well, have you watched mid-table Premier League football recently? It's awful. Like, it's really bad. All football is really bad. It's at the very top of it, which is really good. And what you watch for isn't the standard. Just that's something that not really, apart from experts like Chinch, most of us don't really understand what we're watching. Not really. What you watch for is drama. And that Flamengo River Plate game had incredible drama. So no matter that you weren't invested in either of the teams, no matter that you really want to be watching Michael Portillo wanging on about Brisbane to Adelaide or something, you could you watched the last three minutes of that game and you could not fail to enjoy it because that's what you want: jeopardy and drama and high stakes. You would be a great FIFA president. All football is awful. That's a that's <laughs> no, a wonderful I'm, selling point I'm for, being the, for the world game, isn't it? I'm exaggerating slightly. I agree with you. But do, you know, do you know what I mean? Yes, Most I do. football that you watch is yes. not high quality. Yes. And so you need something, a salt and pepper, well, it's not, it's a not condiment so much that. to sprinkle over any game of football, and jeopardy is that thing. I suppose my, my twin point, which I'm not making very well, one is that I think this idea that, that you should only watch high-quality football is wrong, because most football isn't high-quality, so it's not, a, it's not a valid argument for saying you shouldn't watch foreign football because it's worse. I generally feel as though if you like football, you should probably just watch football, you know, until you don't want to watch football anymore. That's my kind of 
thread. Uh, finally, from Buffalo, John Wood. If you're a new listener, a Buffalo is our way of saying friend of the pod. Why do we think that there's any new listeners? Well, just in case, you know, we reached our 100 episode we milestone. Pla- we plateaued we plateaued years ago. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> in that case, finally, from Buffalo, John Wood. You all know what Buffalo is. Come on. Dear Sandy and others, says John. <laughs> just wanted to email to say that I really enjoyed the live show last week. Who knew Trivial Pursuit could be so entertaining? Two private jokes there from John, one of which will become public at the end of the show when you can hear our live out of context Reacher, the other one. Entertaining is not a word I would use about that game of Trivial Pursuit. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com at setpiecemenu. We're also on Facebook. Now, we have often said that for most clubs, just one defeat can lead to a crisis. While a reflection of how fans sometimes feel, that is obviously hyperbole. And perhaps we should be a little less profligate with the hyperbolic language. But are there some clubs who, rather than lurching into crisis after an unfortunate result, are actually in enough of a long-term funk to be described as a club in crisis? And is there a blueprint for such a club? Perhaps one that doesn't really have a blueprint. It's about a year since we did pod number 108. You'll remember it. Of course you all will. Called How to Run a Football Club. One of our most listened to episodes, as it happens. Maybe that was before the plateau. Uh, Because the world should definitely take heed of four unqualified idiots when considering the question of how to run a football club, obviously. So we thought we'd have a conversation that might work as an accompaniment. What kind of club is a genuine crisis club? Can I give you an insight into my process? Yes, please do. Always. So when, apparently people like that when you, when you have an insight into people's processes because... Um, we want to see behind the curtain. Exactly. Mm. Uh, a twitch Pull behind the curtain. Pull back the kimono. And I think someone else said that to me the other day. I think it's an American phrase. I've heard it. I've heard it. Only oh. American people say, "Pull back the kimono." It sounds Pull very back the kimono. It sounds creepy. Slight, it slightly sound, creepy. It it like ver- it's a, it's a phrase. Don't it, use that phrase again. That's well, it's a phrase. It it's sounds phrase. very wine. Corduroy curtain. Let's look behind the Roy Smith's big corduroy curtain. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> um, I, I I tend to get worried in kind of November because I run out of opinions on English football, and I kind of re- I realise that. I've said everything I want to say. Nothing's really changing. Why don't you hibernate? Most of the clubs are not that interesting because they're just the same as ever. You know, you can't. You, so let's take Bournemouth as an example. Mm-hmm. The Bournemouth story is not changing. It's still a good story, but it's not really getting. There's nothing new to say. I have nothing new to say about Bournemouth. I don't have anything urgent to say about Bournemouth. Um, and then this year, it occurred to me that in a sense, that boredom itself is quite interesting. And it, as it applies particularly to two clubs that really stand out to me that inspired this discussion. And those two clubs are Everton and West Ham. Everton are, I think, still the fourth most successful team in English football. I think United, Liverpool, Arsenal have won more titles, and I think Everton is still fourth. I think it was the 95 Cup final win that that tipped them from fifth to fourth. Yeah, On the the subject of plateaus. (laughs) (laughs) um, Was that a plateau? Would that count as a plateau? That was a peak. That was a peak, I think, more. And yeah. then there was a, then there was no a sharp descent. Are we talking about and a very low plateau. I'm talking about change. So Everton is still the fourth most successful club in, in England. They are still a massive club by any, any, me- any measure. West Ham, although people tend to have quite strong opinions on, on kind of West Ham's right to call themselves big. I'm inclined to think that they are quite a big club, West Ham, and one with a rich history and blah, 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 big fan base, free stadium. Uh, and that yet they both seem to permanently be bouncing between managers, bouncing between disappointments, bouncing between one plan and another. And it made me start to think, and it may be that I was just desperate for an idea, but it made me start to think, is that, is that something that is indicative of the perils of being that type of club at this stage in football? So you're not one of the super elite, super wealthy clubs. 
and you're not a young, thrusting, upwardly mobile, sort of good story in inverted commas, club that's risen through the leads and feels like it's going somewhere which you could maybe say is true of, say, Bournemouth and was true of Swansea, and potentially, if it holds, might even be true of Sheffield United. They, couldn't, they can't slingshot themselves forward in the way that Leicester have done, for Leicester, example, because, yeah. they, because they are already bubbling along at a level with which you can't get that, that come-from-behind momentum. Yeah, and there's also there's no kind of... There's, no, there's nothing to propel them forwards because they are, they are in the Premier League. They're just there. They are in the Premier League. They aren't you know, having the bounce of coming up and then attracting more players and they don't have that excitement. And I think that's, that's dangerous in the sense that it, it creates kind of a stasis, a desire to hold what you have. So is it like a treading water crisis? Yeah, th- yeah they're, kind of, they're, not, they're not sinking. Yeah. Although, well, they're both... They're not going either way. And, but that feels in football like a crisis if you're not moving. But is it? I think to an extent it probably is. It's a, a slow burn because mm. by, the, by the time you've realised it's happening, it might be too late. And now this year, I'm not saying both West, Everton and West Ham will go down this year. I don't think they will, but I don't think either of them will. But there is, there is a... As, if you stand still, other clubs are moving past you. And yeah. what, the, what the TV money has done in football is enable clubs that don't have the traditional support, don't have the big stadiums, don't have the history to level the playing field. So mm-hmm. Bournemouth are now one of the 30th rich, richest football teams in the world. Mm-hmm. Bournemouth. Mm-hmm. The same would be true of Brighton, the same is true of all of them, but Brighton feel like they're going, going somewhere and Brighton very cleverly, although it was harsh on Chris Hughton, sacked their manager when they felt as though, right, this, this, is, this has gone stale. Yeah. We have to keep moving forward. We have to keep this momentum. Um, it's happened with Wolves, who were obviously historically a massive club but had been in the doldrums for long enough that it maybe didn't feel like it quite so much. Even Burnley, to an extent, are now, you know, they've had four years in the Premier League. That's a lot of money to put into a, into a club that doesn't have a massive wage bill. Wolves have had to do that thing, though, where they've had to regress massively. Yeah. They've had to drop down to the third tier and use that as their platform to launch forward. And we have seen teams, you know, Swansea, uh, Southampton, Norwich have all sort of been through that Leicester. process. Leicester have all been through that process of almost bottoming out mm. and, and rebuilding from there, which is something that one assumes that Everton and, and West Ham just couldn't possibly consider doing. Well, West Ham, West Ham have been relegated, obviously, not that long ago, and then came back relatively quickly. But they seem to have kind of got to the point where they, where they had... The, they seem to have got to the point that they occupied previously and kind of stopped there, and now they're regressing again. So it, w- with both Everton and West Ham, who are two clubs who probably wouldn't necessarily like being compared to each other, I guess, but they feel like they're of similar proportions in the modern game, if maybe Everton's history outweighs West Ham's. Um, they're both trapped in this cycle where they hire a manager, they have some initial success, they spend a lot of money on players, they, they have both spent a lot of money on players in recent years. It goes well for a bit, there is a downturn, everyone gets very upset, the manager loses the, the faith of the players, the manager loses lots of games, the manager gets replaced, it starts again. And after a while, I think you... you they're probably each individual manager is probably only taking them back to where they started, but because where they started is remaining the same, and all these other clubs are going past them, they are gradually slipping down the table. So whereas Everton previously that cycle would have ended up with them finishing eighth all of the time, now it's like fourteenth, and that's that's worrying because after a while fourteenth maybe becomes eighteenth. So what are the other clubs? The other clubs are doing things. Is it a cultural or philosophical problem, or is it an appointment that can change? Everton and West Ham then? What no, I don't think it is. And you, you might get really the clubs doing things differently. You might get really them. lucky with one appointment. You might find, they might go out and get some manager from Sweden mm-hmm. who turns out to, they might go on, one of them might go and hire Marco Rosa from Munchen Gladbach who turns out to be the next big thing 
in European football management and suddenly you've got this wonderful manager, this wonderful team and suddenly it's all right. That can happen, it's not impossible. But I think much more likely is that it's a systemic failure at the clubs, partly because they they don't have that momentum, they don't have that plan in place that means, right, this is what we do, it's going to take us from League One, Championship, Premier League, survive in the first year, survive a bit better in the second year, third year, we suddenly we're mid-table, start to build from there. They are stuck in in kind of just trying to maintain what... Initially, their, their impulse is to maintain where they are. And the other problem that the scale of the club brings is the expectation is much higher. Mm. So a crisis would normally suggest that it is something that is becoming exponentially worse and could reach the very nadir of your situation. But this actually feels like crisis means... Uh, getting stuck in a rut which is ongoing and you can't see the end of it and that and that feels like why it's a crisis because there are three tiers are there not to these crises developing mm-hmm. owners managers players or player recruitment so you've got sometimes a change in ownership which brings about a change in manager and every time there's a change in manager you will often get an influx of players certainly you'll get an influx of players with a new owner if they bring in new money so is there a situation where because they haven't they are kind of stuck in this perpetual crisis as opposed to something that blows up really badly. They are searching for something and chasing for something which they feel genuinely is attainable and constantly falling short or making the wrong decisions in attempting to reach it. Whereas those clubs that have gone down two divisions, they know that that's way away, so they they plan accordingly and a lot more sensibly. But I think also there's a blank slate element, isn't there? So you... you you're able to put in place the Southampton, where everything's away, the Southampton way, oh, when had, you're in lead one. They had a, the, the, the press release to, to announce their new director of football had the Southampton way in capitals, T-S-W, twice in the press release. I was just like, mm. they're going to put a trademark on it. Next. It's a bit, well, I'm, I'm surprised they haven't already. There's, there's the a Southampton Nor- way should be doing some significant roadworks that speed up the way to getting <laughs> to Southampton. <laughs> the... Um, but they, you, you can put in place a plan and kind of, you can have a root and branch review. Everyone loves a root and branch review. When you have that kind, when the disaster comes to a head, when you, when you are Leicester and you are relegated to lead one, that is, I mean, Leicester are traditionally a yo-yo club between the first and second tiers. Lead one, third division, bad for Leicester. You can look at that and think, let's, let's change it the way we do everything. Your owners can come in and they can have big and bold and broad ideas about what they want their club to be. And it, how quickly they want yeah, them to be that. You, there, is, there is much less resistance to that change when something, bad, when the bad thing has happened. The problem I think that Everton and West Ham particularly have, and it's probably true of even possibly Newcastle to an extent at times in the past, obviously there's, there's a bigger issue with Newcastle now, it's probably true of Villa for a while before they were relegated. That, that class of team... The problem is that there is, there is a lot of resistance because there is a lingering sense among the fans, among the, the staff at the club that, that there is a way in place already that should work, that the, the, that the club should be restored to what it was rather than trying to be, to be a new thing. And but that so makes it harder for everyone to kind of do everything. But sometimes do you, the clubs you talked about dropping down to come back up again, to get kind of bottom out and then kind of re-establish what the club is all about. And then it's easier clear to move forward when you've dropped down. If you're like Everton and West Ham, are they just trying to maintain their place in the Premier League? So there's, it's all about survival and not about necessarily, well, where are we actually going? What is the plan? The plan is just to stay in the league, to keep the money flowing. But at Everton, they seemingly they've got the owners in place with a lot of money. They've made 
coaching appointments which haven't worked with Ronald Koeman and, and Marco Silva looks like he's in trouble as well they as coaches have brought a lot of players as Hugh said that hasn't worked either so the style of, so they've compounded two of the three elements are not working at Everton the owners probably have a lot of money in a plan but if you appoint these people and they don't do their jobs properly the players that they bring in don't do their job properly you're really just scrabbling to save yourself season on season so you know not like we want Everton or West Ham to drop out of the league but can that be of benefit to clubs because you come back stronger and you're moving upwards you're moving in that direction I've always thought it can be uh, but I think it often isn't so there's a couple of teams I think Villa was one that I went when they went do they, Villa sort of flirted with it for three, two or three years, didn't they? And then, then they eventually They turned went. it round from how bad they were yeah. in the Premier They've turned it round remarkably quickly, haven't they? Really? Pre- yeah, pretty And given that they've had at least one slightly odd, kind of a bit iffy owner in that time, yeah. that's pretty impressive. And they've managed to do it without dropping down to the third tier, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is a lot generally need. the point which yeah. you have to get to before things start coming back together. Well, you looked at Stoke. Stoke, Stoke seems to be going in, in that general direction. They might yet survive it with Michael O'Neill, but there is, there is a possibility that Stoke will will drop down to the third tier, having been the sort of archetypal, we will always finish ninth club. Mm-hmm. And they'd almost got into that position where where they didn't want to institute, you could, tell, you could almost tell with Stoke, looking back, that they were frightened of genuine change. Mm-hmm. So they got rid of Pulis and they brought in Hughes, and every time the results started, Hughes was a bit more adventurous, but every time the results started to turn, you could tell there was this sense of, just put Ryan Shawcross and Rory's lap on the pitch and just boot it and see what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. And I think they get so wedded to the idea of this is what worked, mm-hmm. it's really hard to escape. Mm-hmm and think, let's do something completely different. And it's also hard to change. It's e- much easier to s- talk about selling players than it is to actually sell them. I think with Everton and West Ham, the Everton owner's definitely got the money. Not sure he's got a plan. Okay. Yeah, having, having money isn't necessarily the, the be-all and end-all. You need to be able to use it sensibly. Yeah. So presuming there is a plan, is Decision maybe making that's, is that's more not an assumption we should make, they, even though they've got a lot of money and, and made he money through business. He might have hired people yeah, but who again, do yeah, have a plan. You, you'd, you'd hope that would be bringing people in to formulate but again, if it keeps going wrong, is it the fault? Is it their fault for employing the people they're employing, the players that they're then recruiting? Does that ultimately the book stops with the owner? So the crisis really starts with them and whether they have a plan or not. Partly, yeah, probably. I wonder whether, I wonder whether, whether the problem for those clubs is what what can the plan be? Mm-hmm. That's that's another issue. So if you're if you've recently arrived in the Premier League and you're quite a small club, you. You kind of you're allowed to enjoy for a couple of years just being there and mm-hmm. staying up and maybe taking a couple of scalps and all that stuff. And it's only after a little while that, that fans might start to grumble and say, "Well, look, where are we actually going with this?" They may not. They may just think, "Right, actually, we're happy finishing somewhat. You know, good season is finishing ninth, bad season is finishing thirteenth. That's fine." Because Burnley could be Stoke and say, "Right, we've, we've survived and we survived playing the way that we yeah. are. We want a bit of it to want to see better football." But they don't seem to be falling into that trap. They seem no. to be happy with who they are and how they do things. Yep, they understand. It'd be interesting to see what they do when Dykes leaves, but yeah. the if Dykes leaves, he might not. Mm. Burnley, from uh, the, the chief executive at Burnley, I've spoken to a couple of times, and he, he's very much of the view that you don't want to do a Stoke or a Charlton. You don't, you don't kind of get above yourself. You just, you just think, oh, well, actually, we'll, we'll stay in the league. But this, so this is the problem. Mm. A club of Burnley scale can think it's okay just to stay in the league, and I think this, the fans would probably accept ah, it for a long yeah. time. Mm. Everton can't do that. Is this the problem, though, that Everton and West Ham share? Are they victims ever so slightly, firstly, of where they are at geographically, because they both occupy space within traditional football powerhouse cities without being anywhere near the biggest club in that environment? I wouldn't describe London as a football powerhouse, but go on. Well, in terms of the size of the clubs, 
yes. a competitive a competitive marketplace. How about that? There's lots of teams in London, Rory. Basically, lots of. It's teams. a competitive market. You've got the Westfield. You've got Oxford Street. You've got yeah. There's loads. Of, there's another Westfield in in Shepherd's Bush. It's also actual marketplaces. It's not a London power. It's not a, a power city house. with two Westfields. I mean, that's is a is a is a yeah. Okay, two Westfields. That's what people two know Westfields, London for. One West Ham. Well, we you, you mentioned at the beginning, nice. a, a beginning of the the conversation. You know, how big a club are West Ham really? If they weren't a London club, I don't think their credentials to be an elite English football team would be taken quite as seriously as That's they true. are. And they, they do have a huge following within the football media. There are a large number of football journalists who have an affinity to West yeah. Ham. Yeah, although it's interesting how that's changing because of the, the, shift, how, the shift in sort of demographics of London that now most journalists are Palace fans. Well, they, yes, they, but that, that's Palace have a massive support. Because the they, they can only afford to live in Croydon. Exactly. <laughs> so those clubs both have this situation where they come from, from big cities where clubs have had success and therefore they are seen to be... <laughs> effectively challenging those mm. those larger more dominant forces and that is the expectation you know an expectation amongst Everton fans is that they should be able to compete on an even keel with Liverpool whereas that is pro- probably an an unrealistic expectation in the same way that West Ham would be as big as Tottenham or Arsenal is is unrealistic and that also the platform that they occupy means that they can't be content with survival and there is that constant thought that they should be challenging you don't have to West Ham beating Manchester United in September the talk wasn't just of them challenging for Europe there was quite a bit of chat about them challenging for the Champions League Mm. and six winless matches later they're closer to the bottom three than they are to the top four so they got a little bit giddy they got carried away because suddenly they felt after this long wait of developing into a club that potentially could could challenge the elite that 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 was possible and there wasn't that nuanced direction to their thought process that let's just enjoy this whilst it's going along without aiming our targets so far that they become almost suffocating but there's the phrase isn't there that uh, people probably have like put up on walls and on t-shirts and things where it's something along the lines of shoot for the stars because if you miss you'll still you know, hit the skies or the clouds or whatever it is. I'm sorry, I don't know it off the top of my head. I was up at four it's o'clock this it's morning. It's not going to be the clouds. Shoot for the stars. <laughs> if you miss, you'll hit the clouds. Stu- yeah. Stuck stuck in a large... Basically, aim high, storm. Ferris. Yeah. Aim high. Aim high. Shoot for the stars and worst thing is you <laughs> can get a bit foggy. <laughs> <laughs> but that, the, 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 the essential premise behind that is that it's a good thing to do. But in this situation, it isn't. Because if you do shoot too high, you can often fall further uh, behind... And so if we take West Ham as this case study and take those three um, stratas, you've mm. got the owners. What have the owners done to perhaps make West Ham a crisis club? They've hired Manuel Pellegrini. Is that something that makes them a potential crisis club because they've uh, spent a lot of money on a manager who wants certain things? He's at a stage of his career where he would demand a certain war chest. And then they've spent lots of money on players who they have recruited they think, I would imagine, successfully, but have not necessarily proved that so far. Although the two that they've spent a lot of money on over the last two years have been pretty good players. So what are you, what are you doing to change West Ham's approach that makes them not a potential crisis club? So I think that we, we have a problem with personifying issues. So I think there is always a tendency to say it's the owner's fault or it's the manager's fault or it's the player's fault. We have to, we have to find kind of someone to blame. 
that's probably normal and natural and all that stuff. And I think it, in West Ham's case, you can certainly question the owner's thought processes. You can question their reliability, the consistency of their decision making, all that is stuff. Is because they what? Because they're shooting too high. So I think the problem. I, I think the problem is probably that the bar for failure is too low. It's too easy to fail at those at those clubs in a way that it's n- it, it's much harder to fail properly at Burnley or at Swansea or even at Leicester. West Ham and Everton feel as though they're having a bad season if they're really if they're not challenging for Europe. There is a, not just amongst the fans, but generally there's an expectation that those two teams should be finishing between seventh and tenth, probably. Mm. Ideally, kind of getting towards nibbling away at sixth place. That's kind of where both both fan bases I think would would like to see their teams. That seems fair, and it's where, but kind of the the broader football culture kind of places those teams. The problem is that a lot of the advantages that they had even 10, 15 years ago in doing that no longer exist because everything has been wiped out by the TV money. Mm-hmm. The, the field is so level that those teams that don't have the same size stadium or the, his- the historic support or whatever have just as much ability to go and hire players mm-hmm. of the same quality. They also have a forward momentum that we talked about from, from up, that upward bounce from coming up, a sense of momentum and often a plan in place. And what that means is that Everton and West Ham feel like they're letting themselves down much more quickly, which creates a sense of crisis, which creates an urgency to act, which leads to poor decision-making, which basically exacerbates the whole cycle. So I think those the, the thought that I had, and I might be wrong, is that those two teams are basically, unless they can find the perfect manager or they unearth some sort of superstar who, ca- who uplifts the whole place, this, is, this might be their fate in the modern football Firmament. Um, it's a Confucius quote, says Google. Um, if you shoot for the stars, you might hit the moon. No mm. clouds, no fog. Mm. Much, much, much closer what, to the stars. Why do you want to the moon? What's yeah, the, the dead, waterless moon. That's, yeah. worth, that's worth hitting, isn't it? Yeah, it every, really is. The stars are quite hot, so... Every, there. Yeah. every night we have to go out, outside for a quarter of an hour so that Ed can see the moon. He just goes, moon... And then when he doesn't see one, he goes, no more. <laughs> oh. Which he would say pretty much 90% of the time living in Manchester. You need to teach I him clouds. I can't remember the last time I saw I'm the moon. I'm trying to teach him clouds. So can the problem for Everton and West Ham in particular be, are they trying to recreate former glories in a, no more. In a different no more, <laughs> in, a, in a different way that maybe... So maybe less is... It seems like Burnley, less is more. Being less of a club than maybe yeah. Everton or West Ham so are Everton and West Ham are they trying to recreate former glories or are they trying to keep pace with Liverpool and Ma- are they are they thinking about themselves in the current football setup, or do the owners and the fans think about what Everton use what they stand for but and th- that puts them under more pressure I think maybe teams like glories, but that these are former glories which are I mean 1995 is a long time ago 1966 when West Ham won the World Cup is a long time ago but even the late 70s when they won the FA Cup uh, 1980 they won the, the yes. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- th- this is a long time ago. As the generations go past, ha- how will there be any memory harking back? But there still to seems to be because it's it's that's how football works. Because you you pass down to your kids the the mythology and the lore and the. Again, Rory picked out two teams. He could have picked out other teams, but he picked out Everton and West Ham. Why is that? Okay, they've not won something for a long time, but still, why did you pick those teams out? Because of presumably the memory of what they stand for. But also changed because all of the others have gone. All of the other teams who occupied that same position have gone, which is why West Ham and Everton should be worried. Just Villa went. Yeah. Newcastle have gone twice and come back with a dreadful owner. I mean, Leeds you can probably put in that same yeah, yeah, in that same sure. category. Although they have, 
they probably had a go- they certainly had a golden age that that West Ham have never had. Yes, as Leeds yeah. were, were the best team in the country for large swathes of the seventies, and won the title in ninety two. The all of those those clubs who are in who occupy those roles, they've all gone. They, mm-hmm. Villa have now got to get used to kind of the idea that I mean it's brilliant having Villa Park back, and Villa are a massive club, mm-hmm. but they are. It strikes me they're kind of happy at the moment to well, be just to be in the their first season back. Just by to be that in the measure, League. West Ham have gone twice as well. That's so true. Are we actually narrowing this down to just Everton? Well, no. I think what the difference with West Ham is they've gone twice. They've come back. They've bounced back quickly. Quickly, so it, the rot has not set into right. quite but, the same extent. And what's interesting with West Ham is that they've bounced back up and then gone back to being exactly what they were before, which was kind of a club that every every eighteen months sacks its managers. It's not doing quite as well as it thinks it does. And I think the problem that you have is that. Yeah, is that historic association among the fans that is passed down from parents to kids of this is what this club should be. So, but would, would the owners of those two clubs see themselves as in crisis? Would they see what, what you're talking about? Would they see that at all? They'd, they'd just change the manager, wouldn't they? Yeah, and buy the more players. Throw yeah. bad money after bad. Golden mm-hmm. Sullivan don't strike me as being, uh, West Ham don't strike me as being of the view that there's something, that something fundamental is wrong at the club. I think I wonder if Mashiri at Everton might have slightly more... He's a bit newer. He's probably thrown more money in more quickly. Mm. I wonder if he might have a suspicion that something's not quite right. And will, if Everton, it looks like they're going to move to a new step, will that help them moving to it? So it's in essence, it, could that be a new start? Would it be a new Everton? So again, do you distance yourself from Goodison? It hasn't from the, Well, exactly, I'm, I'm yeah. Arguably, Argu- Argu- it's not worked for Arsenal. <laughs> yeah. But again, no, is, that, is that establishing kind of a new, it's kind of a, a, I don't kind of a line in the sand and maybe there's an opportunity to be something... That you, that you weren't previously. I don't think it's an argument that it's not worked for Arsenal. Moving into the stadium in hindsight was a mistake. They didn't see, they, they didn't see the television revolution coming mm. to the scale that it has. I think Spurs moving into a new stadium is a bit of an odd decision. If I'm, it's an amazing stadium, but if, if I'm completely honest, I'm not sure that is necessarily the most sensible use of all that money, depending on how it impacts on... They've got low, low interest road loans and stuff. Everton's new stadium looks amazing, but what, open 2022? <coughs> what? How far behind the top six as they are now? Will I, they be then? What? What? What amount of difference in a few extra corporate boxes and a bit of match day revenue make when you are? But do they? You are so two hundred million quid a do year. Do Everton behind? generally see themselves as a top six? Is that? Is that? Is that? Is that that's deluded. That's deluded. But, is but it's it? self-esteem. Surely, uh, to to be a club with everything in place to be to have a successful long-term future and imagining yourself to be that successful team, whether it's a top six team, a top four team, you have to feel surely that one of the pieces that needs to be in place. Mm-hmm is the stadium. There, mm, there yeah, doesn't yeah, seem yeah. to be any alternative to building a new stadium. For, for future success, it, not it hasn't today. worked, but if you're Arsenal in 2003, you're not going to say, well, we're going to stay at Highbury. You are going to do, you are going to make that yeah. decision, decision 100 <coughs> times out of 100 uh, because yeah. you see that as a crucial foundation to be able to send your, your team into its second century. And what you can't, what you have to factor in is that part of the reason the Premier League, most of the reason, we talked earlier about quality of football being a quite a sort of ephemeral idea mm-hmm. what sells the Premier League around the world what, make, what makes Chinch an NBC employee is that is the spectacle and part of the spectacle is related to the backdrop to the scenery <laughs> and the Emirates probably has helped increase the Premier League's television rights deals because it is a spectacular stadium just as the Spurs stadium will and just as Everton's new one will but I don't think the stadium in itself will transform Everton just as they the, I remember at Villa Park they were playing Villa the night the Mashiri takeover got got taken over, and the away the away end at Villa Park was singing something along the lines of "We've got our billionaire" or "We've got all the money in the world" or something. And 
and they, there was an expectation that we have now got the shudder daddy, we are going to be big again. And it doesn't work like that. It's because history and prestige come with a sense of entitlement ingrained that you are a big club. Once you've been a big club once, you will always be a big club. And there is no sense of perspective in terms of, in terms of well, actually, when we had our glorious time, you know, Everton, for example, in the 1980s, football landscape was very different. 1990s, you know, Ginger would probably say. Mid-90s, mid they were was, very hot. It was more like the <laughs> mid-80s, really, wasn't it? I they mean, were very much declining by the mid-90s. Yeah, if, if, yeah. Unless your shirt had a sort of white V at yeah, the neck, yeah, yeah, you weren't yeah. really playing for In Everton fact, at the, it, the glory stage. The half-year was probably when it Thank started going down much. and the signing of... The summer of 1990. <laughs> like just about the summer of 1990. It's exactly about signing the just the wrong players yeah, at the wrong exactly. time. Bang! <laughs> That was an era of football in which making one or two good decisions could have a huge impact in terms of silverware. Now we're in an era where Manchester City can do a deal which values the club at three and a half billion pounds. And that is, even with all of Mashiri's money, something that Everton cannot possibly even contemplate competing with and the other thing that Everton and West Ham have in common is that whether they like it or not don't at me they are platform clubs mm. for players mm. players are either on their way up and they're going via the likes of Everton and West Ham or they are perhaps on their way back down again yep. you know Lukaku scores a few goals for Everton in a season suddenly he's on Manchester United's radar uh, Sebastian Allaire scores a few goals for Eintracht Frankfurt if you'd been watching Eintracht Frankfurt carefully, you probably would have thought he wasn't the one that would succeed from that that group that were excellent in the Bundesliga last season. He wouldn't be the one to to excel in the Premier League. But if he had, or if he does, the vultures will be circling to move him up the ladder somewhere else. So even if you do make those right decisions, even if you do get that bit of luck with the, you know, Swedish manager that nobody's heard of and actually comes to the Premier League and does an unbelievable job he's not going to be around for long. No. Because one of the even bigger beasts of the Premier League are going to snatch him from you. And Stoke be- became very much at peace with the idea during that period under Mark Hughes, where they were looking to progress at least a little bit, the yeah. start of their football, not wanting to necessarily shoot for the stars, whether they hit the moon or not. Um, they that was roughly the tra- tra- trajectory <laughs> of the ball. Though. <laughs> during the Pulis era, Mark Hughes would say that it was very much fog level. Um, there, are, there are those who came to the club, and we've spoken about it before who understood that they were going to be there for a while they got a Premier League shop window and Stoke were comfortable with the fact that they wouldn't stick around but just so again Stoke could do that Stoke could go to Shakiri and Bojan and the other one and say Afalai wasn't it Uh, and say it's Boyan as well by the way Boyan 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 Uh, I I, I call him Bojan Uh, he's not called Bojan as in Bojangles, 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 yes, Boyan, yeah, okay. um, NBC, the Bojan, and the um, but never bloody coherent. <laughs> so, so Stoke can do that. They, they have the, I mean, humility, basically, or self-awareness to say we realise you, you are not the one who want to finish your career in this windy thing, this windy stadium by the M6. Everton Very certainly, windy. I think, can't. Everton, I don't think, I don't think Everton's pride, probably understandably, allows them to say that. But also, we don't want to be advocating um, a lack of ambition. No, 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 not at all. Because that is the wrong thing. I mean, for for all we're saying, don't go, don't go too crazy because you'll fall sh- fall short and potentially have years of doldrums or be stuck in a rut. But we don't want to say 
that it's crazy for clubs to dream of no, but of, of succeeding. So, but what it, we're trying to do is it's, it's a hard way to to kind of sit on either side of this particular fence. What we're trying to do is explain why, no matter what the plan seems to be, no matter who they seem to hire, the same things keep happening at, at these types of clubs. And I think that it's it's a mixture between the history, the expectation, and the short termism. That, or the short-termism that's imbued by the history and the expectation that means that there is there is a greater chance of failure for Everton and West Ham, not that it's a guarantee of failure. I, I do agree with Everton and West Ham, but again, if you look at the, the Premier League, are Arsenal in crisis? Are Watford in crisis? Are Southampton in crisis? Newcastle? Is crisis... Ju- oh, if we, I think maybe it's the wrong term. Is that just the, the state of being? Different types of problems for different types of clubs. Well, I think yeah. you're suggesting that, that that crisis in this situation means a state of being which isn't changing despite mm. yeah. lots of money, lots of changes, and lots of plans. Because actually, that are Bournemouth, either torn up quickly Bournemouth or put in being place. the same. See, is that is that a good? That's good. Yeah, that's success. So you're not moving down, but you're not necessarily moving up. Is that? Is Ma- that for Bournemouth maintaining your position is success? I think okay. for mo- most clubs, we want to be getting better year on year, and mm. obviously. The nature of the league means that, the, that there's always going to be a proportion of the clubs that can't do that. That ones that go up a bit are going to have to come down a bit. But well, I think B- Bournemouth realise that to maintain their position, position, they have to keep moving forward. Yeah. So they get better. So, you so they're the, running to stand still. Well, they are. But if you, Thanks, basically, Bono. And aiming for the stars. Ever since he met his people <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I've had my people talk to their people, and it's gone very, very well. Meeting the SPMers has really mm. kind of just focused mm, chinch on mm, on areas for improvement. But you look at Bournemouth signing. I'm so, sorry to be really boring about this. You and I try and talk about. The it subject. will be the final point of the subject. Make it a good one. Bournemouth have over the last few years identified weak areas and they have moved to address them so now if you look at Bournemouth's central midfield it's Jefferson Lerma and Philip Billing both of whom are excellent Lerma gets bought too much but apart from that they're both Lewis excellent. Cook in there as well and Lewis Cook say, yeah. and they bought who's the lad they bought from David Brooks who got injured yeah who's Sheffield injured United. he'll play further forward though David Brooks he does he does but again they're investing in yeah. young players for so the future they are getting better and yeah. good, good owner yes Providing money, mm. good and manager, Nathan Ake, because they had a problem at central, in central defence, and, so and w- good recruitment. So, so the, three, the three levels that we were talking about earlier, not working in other clubs, are working at Bournemouth, and that even if they are staying stagnant in a terms of elite position, potentially over a course of a few years, because those things are happening, it cannot be termed a crisis; it's termed success. Yeah, and well, crucially, it's because they, but Bournemouth are accepting small steps as progress rather than looking for giant leaps. And the other thing that should be said in both Everton and West Ham's defence, particularly Everton. It costs a lot more money to go from 7th to 6th than it does to go from 12th to 11th. But also, Eddie Howe, it makes sense for him to stay at Bournemouth. If Everton came calling... He's an Everton fan. Yes, I know, but his experience at Burnley didn't go particularly well, but that was seven years ago. So would it? does it make sense for him to stay where he is then? Or would would it be... Is Everton a, st- a move forward? It's a bigger club. Is it a move forward? It would... It, Financially, maybe it would be for I would, him. I would, would he take one step forward and two steps back? Because on paper, you look at that and say, Bournemouth to Everton, surely you, you, you would take that yeah. job. But would you? It, de- it depends. He might want... He might. Eddie Howe might see Everton again as the potential platform. But again, he has to fit into a vision, which is the two other elements of that three, that trident needs to be right for him to step yep. into. Otherwise, he will ruin his reputation and he won't get anywhere and nor will Everton. And, but this perhaps is something that is holding the likes of Everton and West Ham back, that you've got to try and forget your history. Stop thinking that you are the sixth or seventh biggest club in the Premier League because if you started making your plans in terms of recruitment, bringing in players, bringing in managers, not thinking, right, we've got to be competing financially with those at the very top... Mm 
that it's those in the middle of the Premier League that we need to be competing with. Perhaps you'd stop spending more money than necessary to attract players who aren't going to make you significantly better and would actually be able to, to do what the likes of Leicester and Bournemouth are doing, mm. bringing in the right players for, for your club at the right time rather than the ones that you think make you look better than you are. So I'd urge Everton fans to, yes, forget your history, apart from 1990 to 1998, never ever forget those glory years it's now time for never mind Jack and Ori what a soccer story this is when Andy Hitchcliffe tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and live worthy details removed I've said this before about because I've been retired as long as I played so I'm going to tell more and more stories about the media side of things <coughs> NBC but no um, this one was uh, again it's my my relationship my, well, I, I, I had a feeling that maybe players that are still currently in the game would have a, a burgeoning respect because they might listen to what I do and hopefully I'm fairly fair to them, good and bad. And uh, the, the most recent game I did was Reading against Leeds, which kind of ties in with the game was awful, but we had the drama of a late goal, a you Leeds did. winner. Yep. So it was hard on Reading, but again, it was dramatic. But I quite enjoyed the game because that's what we're there to do to highlight a poor game, things that are actually good in it. But before the game... So they, we've, we've done all our pre-match interviews. Charlie Adam, old Stoke player, of course, yeah. he's, he's at uh, Reading and he's had a few injury problems. So he was down in the, in the interview area. So I think I met him before once when he was at Stoke playing at Man City. So we kind of knew each other. So we're having a, a, a chat and I've been talking to him about maybe getting an opportunity at Reading and, and you know, Mark Bowen, I think, brought him into the club. So he's saying, yeah, yeah. He said, I will have an opportunity here. And I said, oh, apparently you're injured though, aren't you? Uh, and he said, well, yeah, yeah, I've had a, an injury recently, but I played for the under-23s last night. So I said, well, that's, that's good news. He said, yeah, yeah, sadly, I had that to... Uh, the average age up a bit. It, just a little bit. And he had to come off with an injury. And I, I said, well, you know, naturally you'd say, so what kind of injury was it? And he said, well, um, I got a kick in the box. <laughs> uh, no, actually, no, he didn't. He actually said, I got a knee in the box. And then he proceeded to show me what a knee in the box is like. <laughs> I knee me in the box. <laughs> and I thought again... Did he actually knee you in the box? He, he, he kissed the underside of my sackage with his left knee now when i have played the game, i don't have to play the game to understand what a knee in the ghoul is charlie is all about but he felt the need to go in case you've forgotten this is what it's like and why again out of respect i wouldn't you know i wouldn't be interviewing mick mccarthy talking about that and then here mick this is what a knee in the nuts is like you clearly wouldn't do it would you but charlie whether he feels really comfortable with me why would you th- or actually hates me he might hate you but he might hate you how did he think I was confused about how a knee and the ghoulies would go down I didn't need to be shown it illustrated it Charlie what are you thinking did he like set you up no le- left a little bit right right, no, right okay just, you're ready boom that, that was the problem he was just chat 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 yeah I got a knee and the ghoulies had to come off and this is what it was like wait and he just did it so quickly that I couldn't def- I couldn't cup myself <laughs> what's it? why would you do that that says more about him than me, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. Uh, please continue mm. to send in any soccer stories that you may well have, whether you have been approached by a former Scotland international and kicked in the ghoulies, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. If you have a Reacher novel, by the way, open it, take a photo, send it to us. Andy will read it. Fittingly, it is as simple as the prose which lies within the novel. Take a photo, send it to us. We have one already. We would like more. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Stephen and Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece many of you to enjoy very soon indeed as I say with Reacher send me either a sex scene or a fight scene but there, there is nothing else really apart from travelling on a bus somewhere between A and B the whole story is is love making and fighting isn't it there isn't anything else in those books it just is there? uses a greyhound to get between it does doesn't it yeah. the bus 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's plenty yeah. of moody bits that I think we can, uh, or or him mm. um, figuring out, figuring out things, working it out, or doing that thing that Poirot used to do at the end of uh, um, with the, episodes with the, of Poirot, where he just basically explains everything. Yeah, but do, do the listeners really? I I do feel they prefer a heavy sex scene or a <laughs> a fight with multiple young college boys. I think that's what our listeners would really and, they really enjoy more than anything. And else. as they are about to discover, Chinch, we really, really do excel with the. The multi-voice passages. We need to. We need to see. We, we need, this. Catalogue. This is just the start for us. Know, we. we no. 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 We need to do do this properly. We need to put together some kind of half an hour play, costumes and everything. We need to. We need to do it properly. And then I will approach Radio same, Four. Is that the same we that uh, you had a conversation with your mm. wife about about the hot pot that we're just the hot pot to is is ready to go. So we, we prepared uh, a hot pot. Um, well. <laughs> I was around the hot we pot. We will write a Radio 4 play. I pressed the buttons on the oven, you know. Which button does it cooked? Uh I think there's an on button somewhere. The fact that she's just grabbed the car keys and left <laughs> has concerned me ever so slightly, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, it's not so much that that we've worn. It's the, it was the two suitcases, I think. Uh, and the dogs. <laughs> The first part of our second half is uh, to reflect upon a new tradition that has come into the podcast. Since Chinch, I think, was the first to mention Jack Reacher. In the, in the pod? In the pod. Yeah. Um, Stephen and I also both read Jack Reacher, but we're, for some reason, not as good at promoting it as Chinch is. Why is that, Chinch? Why, why, why are you a lover of Jack Reacher? Um, because he is a lover... And he can also headbutt people. And he can also kill without remorse. I'd love to be able to kill without remorse. It's always held me back over the years. <laughs> I could have been Manchester's Bundy, but just couldn't do it, couldn't bring myself to do it. Starts with me to go on, which is rather nice. Uh, there has been a feature on a recent podcast called Out of Context Reacher. Uh, this is where Andy reads a passage from a Jack Reacher novel written by Lee Child. Um, again, apropos of nothing. It, we just, for some reason, thought that you should hear the wonderful prose and dialogue of uh, Lee Child. Um, there was a recent article in the New York Times, I believe, there was. giving a very interesting insight into Lee Child the person. And I, I, I've never read any Jack Reacher but judging from, from these excerpts that we do... You've never read any, Jack No. I, don't, I walked past that. You know the whole bit of the book shop that's just Lee Child and Jeffrey Deaver? Who they seem don't to put them like in the same Michael bracket. Michael Connolly as well. They seem to write a book like every three weeks. It's like Mills and Boone, but with more murder. Yeah. And, <laughs> and less remorse. <laughs> well... The out-of-context Reacher um, extracts have been read by Chinch in their entirety, but Chinch has had this burning ambition for quite a while now um, to, to write, to produce, and to probably act in a Radio 4 play. So what Chinch has done for this evening has given us an out-of-context Reacher that is written like a play. So, In the sense that there's different parts, not in the yes. sense that there's any artistic merit to it. <laughs> and thankfully it's shorter than a Radio 4 play. Uh, the characters are as follows. Please can I introduce to you, uh, seated centrally to the left, uh, as I look, Stephen Wyeth, who is the narrator of this Out of Context Reacher. Andy Hinchcliffe is Jack Reacher. Rory Obviously. <laughs> is a uh, character called Sandy. And... <laughs> That's uh, a woman, right? Yeah. I, Sandy, the lady, rather than Sandy Lyle, the golfer. Yeah. yeah. 
Sandy Lyle, he could have really got a headbutt from Reacher. <laughs> Maybe a future, future novel in that. 1980s golfers that Reacher would headbutt. Woosnam. Playing the... Um, <laughs> that, that's the full extent of your golfing knowledge. Uh, yeah, I'm out. Um, and playing the tough guy, yours truly. Thank you very much indeed. Beautifully cast. Now, uh, this is from One Shot. Um, it is a scene set in a bar. There's a football game playing on the TV. Reacher is sat at a table when an attractive girl <laughs> walks over. Can I share your table? Help yourself. <laughs> she sat down in the chair next to him. Thanks. She drank from her bottle and kept her eyes on him. Green eyes, bright, wide open. She half turned towards him and arched her back. Her shirt was open three buttons. Maybe a 34D Reacher figured in a push-up bra. I don't know why he's wearing a push-up bra. <laughs> Do you like it? Like what? Football. A bit. <laughs> Did you play? Did you, not do you? She made him feel old. You're certainly big enough. <laughs> <laughs> I tried out for the army when I was at West Point. Did you make the team? Only once. Did you get injured? <laughs> <laughs> That's still Reacher, right, isn't it? <laughs> I was just too violent. She half smiled, not sure if he was joking. I'm Sandy. So was I, last Friday, on a beach. <laughs> That's a genuine line of dialogue in a book. <laughs> you're new in town, aren't you? Usually. If you only like football a bit, maybe you could take me somewhere else. Like where? Someplace quieter. Somewhere a little lonelier. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a car. <laughs> you're old enough to drive? I'm old enough to do lots of things. I'm pretty good at some of them. Reacher said nothing. She pushed the chair out a little from the table. She turned towards him. <laughs> Do you like these pants? <laughs> they suit you very well. I, I do too. Only problem is they're too tight to wear anything underneath. We all have our crosses to bear. Do you think they're too revealing? <laughs> they're opaque. That usually does it for me. It's a weird turn on. <laughs> Imagine peeling them off. I can't. I doubt I would have got them on in the first place. <laughs> Her green eyes narrowed. Are you a queer? Sorry, that's not woke. <laughs> I told you not to ad lib. <laughs> Are you a hooker? No way. I worked at the auto parts store. She paused and seemed to think again. She came up with a better answer, which was to jump up from the chair and scream and slap his face. Everyone turned to look. I'm not going to slap you because I love you. He told me a whore. He told me a damn whore. Chairs scraped and guys stood up fast. Big guys. Country boys. Five of them. The girl smiled in triumph. Those are my brothers. <laughs> Reacher said nothing. You told me a whore in front of my brothers. Five boys, all staring. He told me a whore. Rule one. Be on your feet and ready. Rule two. Show them what they're messing with. Reacher stood up, slow and easy. Six, five-ish. <laughs> Two, fifty. <laughs> Calm eyes, hands loose by his sides. <laughs> He's not dejected. Rule three, 
identify the ringleader. There were five guys. Any five guys have one ringleader, two enthusiastic followers and two reluctant followers. Put the ringleader down and both of the keen sidekicks and it's over. It never gets worse than three on one, rule four. The ringleader is the one who moves first. A big, corn-fed 20-something with a shock of yellow hair and a round red face moved first. Reacher stepped forward to meet them. Rule five. Never back off. But rule six. Never break the furniture? <laughs> break furniture in a bar and the owner gets twitchy. Insurance companies want police reports and a patrolman's first instinct is to throw everyone in jail. He called me a whore. <laughs> she was stood to the side looking at Reacher, looking at the five guys, looking at Reacher like a spectator at a tennis match. Bored. <laughs> Outside! <laughs> This will be over quick. Do you want to maybe give that another go? <laughs> You're up against Jack Reacher here. Do you want to maybe... No? It's my first line. I've had four and a half minutes to think about it. Outside! <laughs> pay your check first. I'll pay later. You won't be able to... You think? That's the difference between us. What is? I think. You've got a smart mouth, pal. That's, that's the least of your worries. Get outside, pal, or I'll put you down right here. Rule seven. Act. Don't react. Okay, let's go outside. <laughs> the big guy smiled. After you. They were waiting for him on the sidewalk. The street was empty and quiet. No traffic. The air was soft. Not hot. Not cold. That's Rule eight. Assess and evaluate. The big guy was round and smooth and heavy, like a <laughs> bull seal. He would start by charging head low, and Reacher was right. The guy exploded out of the blocks and charged head low, straight for Reacher's chest. Mistake, because rule nine. Don't run head on into Jack Reacher, not when he's expecting it. It's like running into an oak tree. Reacher drove all his weight up and straight into the big guy's face. Ain't kinetic energy wonderful? The big guy stumbled back and came to rest six feet away with his feet planted, legs wide apart, like a big, dumb, capital letter A. Put the ringleader down. Can you do this bit for us? Reacher stepped in and kicked him in the groin. <laughs> Reacher stepped in and kicked him in the groin, left-footed. Right-footed, and he would have popped bits of the guy's pelvis out through his nose. <laughs> then it got real easy. The next two guys came in. Reacher dropped the first with a headbutt and the second with an elbow to the jaw. Then it was over. End scene.